Let's see. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, uh, Conversations with Game Developers. Today I'm talking to Craig Hubbard, who was designer of No One Lives Forever and Fear, and is a co-founder of Black Powder Games, who are working on the new title, Betrayer, that is on uh, Steam Early Access right now. How's it going, Craig? Good, thanks. Good. Uh, thanks for, for coming to talk to me. Uh, I, I came up to Seattle, where uh, Black Powder is based, um, to chat. <laughs> Um, I've been a, I've been a fan of your stuff for a really long time. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, I am excited to get to talk to you about is you've been in the games industry for how, how long now? 17 years. 17 years. Yeah, maybe going on 18, 17, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you have been, you've been, you've been shipping games since I was in middle school, <laughs> possibly. I, cause, so you started... Uh, very early uh, in uh, Monolith Studios' life. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, I, I was hired by uh, Q Stu- or the guys that owned Q Studios, which had just been acquired by Monolith when I got out to Seattle. So. Okay. Because you were, the first thing that, that you put out there was um, you were a level designer on Blood, uh, which used the build engine, the, yep. uh, <laughs> the venerable engine that uh, Duke Nukem 3D shipped on. So tell me about your tell me about your background. Like the stuff that, that I that I want to talk about on this podcast are both how you got to where you are in your career um, and how you got to do the work that you've done on on games, and the 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 softer kind of point of how do you achieve like a establish and maintain a specific tone in a game? You know, like how do you get the feel of of an intellectual property, however you want to put it across to the to the player. So, how did you uh, get started in the in the games industry? How did you end up working on that game? Well, so I was living in Connecticut at the time. I was working in a law firm in uh, the marketing department, doing uh, graphic design and editing. Huh. And so, I was did you really... go to did you go to college for like what was that Was that while you were in school or was that after? You no, after school, school I, I moved to Connecticut with my girlfriend at the time and. So what did work in there? Yeah, what did you get your degree in and stuff? Uh, it's English with a concentration in professional writing. Cool. So I wanted to. I've always. I wanted to be a writer since I was in fifth grade. That's when I decided I was going to be a writer. And I knew by the time I was in college, because I kind of went to college late, because I was out in LA trying to be a rock star. <laughs> so after that, and when I actually went to college, I didn't want to waste the time there. So I decided to get something practical that I could turn into a career rather than doing creative writing or something like that. Sure. Sure. So, so you, at what, after you finished high school, you went out to LA to, to, to try your hand at screenwriting, I guess? No, no, that was to, to be in, in to, bands. To be a literal rock star. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So what yeah. did you play? I played guitar and bass. Wow, cool. So you, you, you were in a band out there and I guess you played locally and stuff? Yeah, so, yeah, I was in a band for a while. When I got out there, I, I basically joined the first band that wanted me which in retrospect probably wasn't the best bet but you know we did okay we were kind of going along but I just realized that I wasn't really that into the the band at that point and decided to do something else so I left and the and the LA scene at the time 
Yeah, I wasn't super crazy about it. I was <laughs> I was super poor, so sure. You know, L.A. when you're super poor is not the place to <laughs> not be. the most exciting place in the world. Yeah. I mean, you gotta have a car for one thing. Well, I had a car, anywhere. but it it would get stolen, and I'd get it back. And, <laughs> yeah. It was, Wait, that was like a multiple times thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess you're lucky that you got it back. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um. Okay, so, yeah, you were out there <laughs> rocking out, getting your car stolen, and you decided you are going to head back to the to the East Coast. Well, no, at that point I went back. I'm from New Mexico is where oh, I Oh, really? Up. Yeah, so okay. I decided to go back to go to school, so I went okay, back all right. started in the community college and then went to University of New Mexico. I see. All right. And so then you were at a law firm for a while. For about a year, yeah. I, yeah. I was interested in editing and... Uh, and I was also really into graphic design, so I managed to get a job where I could do both. Yeah. And it just so happened to be in a big law firm. I see. But I was I was very interested in games. Throughout college, I had always wanted to play the games that I saw. I'd see people in the computer lab playing Doom, yeah. which I my computer could barely play Infocom text adventures <laughs> at the time. So when I f- could finally afford a computer, I immediately wanted to make games. So I, I started learning the Duke 3D build engine okay. tools and making Duke levels, and that's when I discovered Blood. So I I went to their website and it was it was not very attractive. So I volunteered <laughs> to redo it for them just to be associated with the game, and they were totally cool and they they were interested. So I did that, and we kind of corresponded. And I was planning to move out to Seattle anyway, which I didn't even know they were here at that point. So it just so, so happened that they were. They got bought by Monolith. I ended up getting a job, and one wow. thing led to another. Yeah. So a Interesting. You and I both made our first levels using the build engine <laughs> that shipped on the Duke 3D disc, I assume. Yep. Uh, I made an epic level that was based in a prison, but it was like an underground. I don't know. It was, it was, a, it was, it was, I made a classic, uh, just creative mistake, which is the very first thing I made was like an epic odyssey, you know, the biggest level in the world. And then, I may it also uh, being whatever thirteen. I didn't know anything about like source control, <laughs> and, so, and so at some point I scripted something that made it so the level wouldn't load anymore. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, guess I'll never play that again. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Um, but in your case, you made levels with the build engine, and then that was your your portfolio at, at Monolith. Yeah, that it it was a kind of a, you know, those were the, the sort of old west wild west right, days right. where. I happened to have a couple of levels that I had made. I had also, like, Quake Q-Test had come out at mm-hmm. that point. I was I was really into Q-Test playing multiplayer. So I had started playing around with, uh, I think it was Worldcraft was the right. editor back then. Yeah. So they needed somebody, and I was interested in working there. So they, they just gave me a chance, and it worked out. Yeah. So. And, I mean, on some level, you already worked for them since you were fixing their website yeah. at the time, right? Yeah. That is always a huge thing. If you can be the guy who's already there yeah. <laughs> and can do the work that they need done, like, hey. That worked out. Well, that's exciting. Um, so, so you, so yeah, you were going to move out to Seattle anyway, but then you ended up moving out here for the the job on Blood? Actually, I, I didn't really have the job on Blood yet. I moved out here uh, knowing that they were here and hoping that something would work mm. out, but I didn't. I see. Nothing was lined up. So the thing that I remember, I remember a lot of things about Blood, I guess. Uh, things I remember are voxels, which yeah. are hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and that you could stab guys with a pitchfork, and that you could shoot a flare gun, which would cause a guy to 
run around on fire. Yep. Those are all pretty yeah. <laughs> rad things to be able to do in a game in... God, when did that game ship? 90... 98? 8? Okay. I think. Yeah. It must yeah. have been 90... Or was... Wait, was that Shogun? Maybe it was 97. I can't remember. I bet it, I bet it was 96, 97. That would... It must have been early 97, because I got there in 90, September of 96, and I know we were working on it for a while after that. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was it, it was an interesting time, I I would assume, in like working in development and design in that space, where you, know, you guys were still working with like a 2.5D engine, and then there was stuff like, you know, Quake, and then Valve used the Quake engine as a starting point for Half-Life and everything, and it was a very transitional point, I, I guess, um, in the technology of first-person stuff when you were when you were shipping uh, Blood. Was, like... I mean, what was, what was it like working with voxels? Was, were voxels, like, a thing that, a, that an artist would make? Or as a level designer, did you... Uh, did no. you make meshes that used voxels, or what? I don't remember how they were made. I just remember... Yeah, they they were being hyped by people that wanted to hype them as better than polygons or something like that. I can't right. remember the, the specific buzzword, but I mean, for people that are younger than thirty years old, yeah, uh, a voxel is a thing that existed. Also, it was basically, I mean, the way that I would that I think of it is it, it's sort of an array of pixels in space. Well, I mean, there's a lot of voxel engines now, I and mean, voxels are really taking off with you know, like I think isn't Minecraft all voxel based? Is it? I don't actually know. I guess it. I guess that's that's totally possible. But I know there's lots of other voxel engine things going on. Yeah, it's like yeah, 17 years later, it's, it's finally <laughs> a, a thing. The technology has come to a point where voxels can actually yep. be worthwhile, <laughs> worthwhile, basically. But of course, you know, in the studio, we all played with the detail settings a little lower, so that because we played multiplayer every single day, right? And you know, you want all the performance you can get, so you don't want to have meaningless. 3D stuff that doesn't really make the game any better in multiplayer. So. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because I, I mean, I'm a single-player gamer almost exclusively personally, and you know, I remember the single-player levels of Blood. I, I remember a voxel uh, headstone very clearly yeah, for yeah. some reason, yeah. um, and I, I don't know. It's totally possible that I only played the demo of Blood uh, because it was at a time when demos were actually like substantial and would come on the PC gamer demo disc or or whatever. But I don't I don't think I ever played multiplayer blood. Was it like it's it's interesting and and cool to me to think of the fact that you guys were playing multi every day. Did the design come from I mean I assume the design came from multi and then like filtered into a, a campaign or what was the 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 dialogue there between those two halves of the experience? You know, it's it's I came in sort of later on the project, mm. so multiplayer was already working. The campaign was already kind of built. I, I ended up working on about half the levels in the long run, but a lot of those were just taking things that were kind of in partial form to completion. But multiplayer was a, a big focus, but I don't really know which one they started with. It was actually, for me, it was later... It was after, uh, I think it was a GDC presentation by the Bungie guys about their process on Halo and how it was multiplayer first that I really became persuaded by that. So I don't think I really had that in my mindset back in the days, and I don't think the other guys did either. But yeah. but we loved multiplayer, and Blood Multiplayer is one of the best experiences. I mean, 
like in the we we would have we'd play something every day so you play uh at the time it was like quake duke 3d or blood for us so we, we'd play like duke 3d and our, our score would be you know maybe this is after an hour of play we'd be up to like 50 kills we play quake we'd be up to like 30 kills you play blood we'd be up to 400 kills <laughs> seriously in that that amount of time it was the best it was the best it's unparalleled it sounds uh chaotic it was, it was just so sublime <laughs> well now you got me wanting to uh to load up i don't know m play or whatever yeah like <laughs> yeah. a multiplayer thing that would be required to play multiplayer blood yeah. it would be and see how it how it rolls is that thing <clears throat> is it available on like I don't know gog.com or something at this yeah, point. Yeah, but I don't I don't think the multiplayer actually works anymore. Yeah. Maybe maybe like to... LAN. Maybe if you had maybe a so. sweet LAN party. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> so how many people were at the studio when you showed that thing? So when I got there it was uh the blood team was small. It was probably I don't know. I I'd, I'd say it was maybe around 10 people total there. And then there was also the the beginnings of what would later become Shogo. That team was working. I don't remember the total number of people but we all fit in one building later on we were in uh three or four buildings so wow. we definitely grew a lot yeah sounds like it well because by the time that like by the recent history of monolith there were multiple full-fledged titles in development at the same time so yeah i i imagine that uh the scale changed a lot over the years um so what was it i mean this is the worst kind of interview question but what was it like to ship your first game? Like, was I, I don't know what what do you remember about when the game actually came out? Because I mean, you know, first game coming out is a weird experience generally. <laughs> I, I think strangely, I don't have any memories of the game coming out, but I do. I vividly remember the day we shipped because we had been. We were. We were actually. If you're ever making a game, don't do it this way. We were putting in the last <laughs> weapon. Our engineer, our lead designer and engineer, was was coding the last weapon in the game the day that we shipped. <laughs> we had we had most of the rest of everything done, so we were just waiting for him to get done with that. And then he was so exhausted because he'd been up so long that he ended up sort of passing out at his desk. <laughs> so me, who has no at this point no experience with any code stuff whatsoever, and our producer, who had been an engineer for a while, but wasn't quite on the same level of engineering. Yeah. We had to we had to check in the, the code. <laughs> it was it was the most terrifying thing. But I remember it was a really bizarre night because after that I was playing Resident Evil on PlayStation for the first time. We had a PlayStation down in the, the kind of break room. Yeah. So I remember playing that while they were trying to get the build ready and uh, you know, the dog jumped through the window, which was awesome at the time. Our producer from GT Interactive had been up forever and he ended up passing out in the, in the bathroom <laughs> it was bizarre it was a very different sort of environment that sounds that. like a, a a hardcore marathon to get that thing done it was it was really bizarre but it was it was kind of fun at the same time yeah i mean it sounds it sounds wild west yeah <laughs> like was, you were saying yeah i think the like the you know, the better things have gotten in the industry the more professional the, the more boring it's gotten by comparison <laughs> Those are the best stories. That was the best time. Yeah. So so you, you got that game done, and the next thing that you worked on, and I feel like, if I if my understanding is right, that you were more uh, directly involved in um, like the higher level 
aspects of was uh, Shogo Mobile Armored Division, um, which was this uh, anime-inspired mech and like human-scale first-person shooter game. I can't remember. Could you were were there levels? Mech versus human, those were always separate levels, right? Like, you weren't, like, getting in and out of the mech, like, in the same level, right? No, you, it was transitions. Yeah. So, were you were you more involved in that uh, early compared to, to when you got in on, on Blood, or...? So, it was, already, it was already in development. It was already a kind of story overview. Not much else. I remember there was a, a point at which I looked at the design document for the first time, and it was a bunch of... Uh, like technical stuff mm. like there was a chapter on force feedback integration but there was no <laughs> game design to speak of yeah. so it was a, a a lot of invention and of course i was way too ambitious like i just wanted to do everything and so i and i think the whole team was the same way so we were just sort of let's do this and let's do that and let's do that and then at a certain point we kind of realized that we had to ship in six months and we had a big kind of broken mess so we said okay there's no way this is going to be good let's just make it fun right and so we just shifted our focus to trying to make the weapons really fun to use and to make just sort of the sense of humor really clear and strong and at least make it an enjoyable experience yeah i feel like that was one of like that was the first game was that the first game in monolith that you were involved with like the writing and story of so i actually wrote the uh I think there was like five cutscenes in Blood, and I wrote four of them. Mm. And I'm actually I'm proud of the writing. the The cutscenes themselves are pretty. I mean, they were done in like a week or something, <laughs> right. so they're pretty janky. But which is my favorite word, but because uh, <laughs> it applies to almost everything I've worked on. Anyway, so it applies to almost everything that every game developer <laughs> has worked on. If you know what's going on under the hood, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Anyway, I think that the there's sort of an interesting kind of structure to the story in Blood that I was really proud of that probably 5% of the people that ever played it picked up on because mm. you had to play the whole thing to really get it. Anyway, so that was the first. And then uh, Shogo, I was working with the other writer that was on the project, and so we kind of... Collaborated? Like, yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was more of the kind of Hollywood mindset. Like, his original sort of story direction was a little bit more... Um, I'd say mainstream, and I took it in a much more bizarre, kind of quirky, <laughs> probably misguided direction. But, but that I mean, that's correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like that basically characterizes all like, of the properties that, that you've been heavily involved with. Is they are very kind of like um, left field, you know, sort of um, out of the ordinary for a premise for a video game. Which for me, you know, when I was when I was playing. Before I was a designer, when I was playing games and really thinking about them, something that was really inspiring to me was seeing when a when that was true of a game that I played. You know, like and so playing something like not to skip ahead too much, but playing something like No One Lives Forever that is very different from the context that normally you know gameplay happens in was a big inspiration for me because it's like oh, interesting unexpected things can be done in games generally but you know also in these specific kinds of games that i'm interested in that are single player games that are you know story that that have like a story focus and and so on and so forth um and so it seems really cool that you have 
basically throughout your time at, at Monolith and coming into the present have had the ability to champion kind of non-standard, you know, imagery and, and characters and story concepts and stuff in the games that you've been able to, to work on. Like, did, did that freedom just come from the fact that Monolith was an independent entity? Uh, and, or, you know, like, why, why do you think that that you've been, that you've been able to make such weird games, basically. I think that uh, like in the case of Shogo, I when I got the job as designer, you know, Jason Hall told me he wanted a Macross game, basically. So I didn't really know what that meant. I had never really <laughs> been that into anime. I'd seen some and liked it, but I I wasn't really knowledgeable. So I started watching a lot, and I was instantly struck by how weird some of it is, like how quirky and and dirty kind of mix of funny and and exciting and all that so i wanted to i just took it kind of literally like let's do this let's make it weird and and quirky but of course it's filtered through you know our experiences and our aesthetics so it's not like a true anime game but i think it does have the the kind of anime weirdness to it and i think in in that case it was weird just because nobody stopped us you know it's like and it it was just sort of the natural thing to do and i think nolf was very much the same way although I think Nolf was even more, because we were working with Fox Interactive and our producer, Chris Miller, really loved the 60s. He's a big Modesty Blaze fan, which again, like I went into that project. I didn't really, I love James Bond, but I didn't know much about like Modesty. I didn't know Modesty Blaze or Danger Diabolic or any of the the stuff like in like Flint. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I immersed myself in it and I thought this really, there's a minefield here of all kinds of weird, cool stuff that. I've never seen done. I haven't even really seen it done in movies, like in contemporary movies, let alone games. So let's just do it. Yeah. Let's embrace it. Let's go. If we're going to do it, let's just do it all the way and do it with our own sort of, I guess, you know, fundamentally I have kind of weird aesthetic to begin with, but, but yeah, it was just a case of nobody really stopping me and until like you get to fear. And that was, I think our conscious effort to, to kind of step back from that and, and say, Let's do something that is truly within our taste, that is that is something that we would naturally like instead of starting with subject matter that's that's sort of dictated to us by circumstance, like you know, like anime or, or uh sixty spy craze stuff. Like I was super into I mean, I'm a huge fan of Hong Kong action movies and of uh of Asian horror in general in general, so it was like let's let's fuse that. I love that idea. But of course, there was a lot of things that went wrong in the project, and it's not really quite what we set out to make. But it's still, I think, the essence of that is there. Yeah, um, it, it's it's something where I feel like, yeah, you're definitely right that the individual sensibility came through, you know, in in all of the the projects. Like fear, on some level, like I guess on the surface, just on the from the cover art or whatever, it seems a lot more mainstream or oh it's a military game now or whatever but as soon as you dig into that game it is a really like it's it's a it's a more straight kind of like darker um set of subject matter but you can still say like this is really weird it's john woo meets the ring in like a quasi-military first person shooter but that's it only looks like that it isn't really that like as soon as you get beneath the surface so i i mean i feel like it maintained that kind of personal feeling of you know someone's interests are, are being expressed through this That's thing good. um 
One of the things that happened on that project, because we were working with with new technology that we had no idea how to use, and we're, we're discovering our way through it from the beginning, pretty much. So we completely overscoped the project. We had had a much more robust story in there originally that we couldn't deliver. So we ended up chopping it all up and, and sort of refashioning it. And in the process of that, like I made one really boneheaded decision up front, which I don't know, I consider boneheaded, but maybe it's good in some level. But I decided the protagonist was going to be silent, which I had never done before, but I thought, let's let's give this a try. This seems like it'd be kind of cool if we could pull it off. Yeah. But it it just, I didn't realize how, how much that would take out of the toolbox to do that. Sure. So there was kind of this weird sort of combination of having a much more involved story that got chopped up with pieces of it got preserved because we had already sort of built those sections of the game. There was also the case where the uh, the publisher had actually come up with the name. We didn't come up with the name Fear. We actually didn't want it because it's a... We didn't want it to sound like a horror game. We wanted it to sound like an action game mm-hmm. with a supernatural twist to it. Yeah. But so anyway, the, we had the name, and the name was... We, it had to be an acronym, which, you know, we just spent like four years making fun of acronyms right we had to anyway it had to be that for trademark reasons so it had to kind of a sort of it's about the team that you're part of which became this other sort of albatross like we had to preserve that element of the game which creates an an expository overhead of explaining what the hell this thing is because it doesn't exist so you have to explain it but you don't have a protagonist you don't have cutscenes like all these tools that you you would normally rely on to do that efficiently are out so it becomes this kind of weird thing of like let's take all these pieces we have put them together and see what we can do and just keep massaging it until it starts to feel at least tonally coherent even though I think a lot of people probably can't follow what's going on super closely well I feel like now that you put it that way my guess would be the control room briefing scene was kind of like a band-aid for that. Exactly. I bet that was a late addition now that, was, that you mentioned it. It was a late addition. Because I can see how it would go from the intro movie, which is very sort of... Um, so the intro movie of Fear, it 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 only visually shows how uh, Paxton Fettel wakes up the, the clone army and then they like massacre everybody and he is like a weird cannibal and it's, it's, it's fairly... Um, What's the word I'm, I'm looking for? It's the imagery is really interesting, and it's a fairly abstract intro. Like not like to the sense of you can't tell what the images are on screen, but it's it's evocative as opposed to being like expository. expository yeah. And then yeah, <laughs> the commanding officer gets up on screen and and is very expository for a yeah. minute to kind of say like you were saying, here's what fear is, here's who you are, here's what we have to do. Yep. Okay, now go play the game. That was very much the case of like, look, we've got to do this, let's just get it over with and right. get into the game. Yeah. Well, Which was a drag, because like, it was the kind of case where probably about six months from the end, it was super clear that the right thing to do was just to have the main character be like either part of a SWAT team or part of a military team, because then there's no, like, the player already can just make the assumptions. They already know what the military does. So you just put them in a situation, you understand it. But we had that that overhead of the fear team, so it just became a burden. Yeah. Well, the thing that's funny to me when you mentioned the acronym is I thought of that as an outsider, as, like, as like a personal trademark. Because it's like you went from Shogo Mad, uh, Mobile Armor Division, I believe that Shogo well, that M-A-D. Yeah, I know, but... To 
Nolf, which got abbreviated. Yeah, Nolf, uh, a spy in harm's way. Which yeah, <laughs> well, harm was our. Like, I know, I know, but it's like, and, yeah. but every title, you know, had like at least one acronym in it, essentially, or like had been shortened to these acronyms for shorthand and everything. And then I felt like fear. Well, of course, the 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 title is just a literal acronym. That's like their whole thing. But it sounds like, in fact, it was it was an outside force that, uh, yeah. that determined that that was going to be the name of the game. It's interesting because this conversation just made me realize where this all came from. So when I was right out of college, I was doing uh, like uh, temp work and I, and I was doing editorial jobs. And I ended up doing uh, some editing on these documents related to various uh, nuclear power plants. And so those are full of acronyms. Yeah. And I just find, I find, you know, as, a, as somebody who's studied technical writing, like you kind of get used to seeing that a lot. Anyway, so I find them incredibly annoying in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, they're important, but you, you, you have to introduce the name and then you put it in an acronym. But I realize now, and it's only because this conversation is associated <laughs> with these things, that that's where the whole Nolf thing came from with, the, with harm and all yeah. that. Like all that... That acronym baggage was left over from the professional <laughs> writing thing. So yeah, and so I mean that's a so that's a useful place to start talking about No One Lives Forever. I feel like because yeah, at, chronologically after Shogo, um, and there was Blood Two somewhere in in there. But like the next that was a different team. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the next big thing that you worked on, yeah, was the original No One Lives Forever, which in fact was called The Operative No One Lives Forever so that's another interesting title thing where the subtitle became the title of the next game and and everything but um, Nolf was a first person stealth action game set in the 60s starring who I will say straight up uh, is my favorite video game character Kate Archer like I, I I love her role in that world and how she's presented and she's just a really cleverly written interesting person in these these games so you play as this female spy who's in this organization and it's it's kind of um the avengers kind of james bond you know like all of the like you you were mentioning um a number of of these 60s kind of globetrotting um spy properties but weirdly for what was it like 1999, 2000, something I like think that? 98 is when that one. I, I can't remember. Yeah, but it, it was maybe it was 2000. That it was it was shit. right around you know. Yeah, um, I think Shogo was 98, so that was 2000. We were every two years we had a project. Yeah, um, so it was really interesting. I think at that time, especially you know, because it, it was like it was post Half Life, where these s- sort of cinematic, like story driven first person shooters had had been established. But it was the first, like, big, like, FPS property that I was aware of, kind of in that mold, that wasn't some kind of sci-fi, you know, like, either either pulpy sci-fi, like Sin, or, you know, kind of quasi-horror sci-fi, you know, like, kind of, uh, like, like Half-Life or, you know, Quake, obviously, is this trans-dimensional thing. And then, even though it's... It's it's pushed and exaggerated and um, and and not one hundred percent just like real world literal. It still is very grounded. You know, no one lives forever takes place in a a sort of exaggerated version of our own world where yeah, there's like 
spy high technology. It was kind of like get smart, you know, gadgets and, yeah. and sort yeah. of wackiness and stuff like that. But I, I think that it feels like you guys took a lot of risks with we're going to have a female protagonist and it's going to be set in the 60s and it's going to be a comedy action stealth game. Like, so tell me the story of how that project ended up becoming a thing that a publisher put a bunch of money into and shipped. It just seems so unlikely. Well, so it started off, uh, we had a kind of, there was a long process of wooing publishers. And so through that, we had a spiritual sequel to, to Shogo that wasn't Giant Max. It was more human scale. Anyway, so we went through a lot of permutations and then ended up settling on this sort of action movie concept, which you know, it's really bizarre to think that that's novel. Like, but it, at that time it was because, like you said, everybody was doing sci-fi. You mean action movie like? Yeah, like just doing a true like, like lies, hard-boiled or true something. lies okay. the game. Yeah, you know, something that is that is very much just grounded in, in action movie cliches. Yeah. which we wanted to do and then tweak. Because the first version of that that I played around that time was Action Quake and Action Half Life, which were mods. Yeah. yeah, they were mods that were very much like based on Hard Boiled and The Killer and and yep. stuff like that. Um, and yeah, there wasn't very much of that. I feel like going on. There wasn't that. a there, mainstream there was King, game. That Kingpin, was, I guess. Yeah, which maybe? was was an interesting kind of thing. But yeah. It, so anyway, there seemed like an uh, opportunity there. We had the, yeah. the falling out of the plane thing from very early on and, yeah. and other stuff like that. But as we ended, we ended up signing with Fox and as we started working with our producer, it became more and more 60s. And, um, and we, at a certain point, it was uh, it became it become I can't remember exactly. I think the uh, the whole spy thing came from our lead engineer at the time, mm. whose name is Kevin Steffens. He's a huge Bond fan. And so he, he probably brought that up. So we uh, we decided to do that, and we kind of it, it immediately took on a kind of humorous tone, just for whatever reason. I think it's the group of people; it's just we naturally want to make each other laugh. So yeah, it ended up kind of becoming the fiber of it. In fact, we were making fun of Bond in one of our initial demo levels, where uh, you're sneaking around this snowbound complex, and you hear one of the guys saying, "Oh yeah, that British guy; he's in a shed in the back. They <laughs> caught him." But the premise was that you're basically the guy who they call when Bond can't get the job done. Oh, okay. So it was going to be the better than Bond, like more exaggerated version. But uh, so we got, I don't remember, I don't know the specifics because I was just a game designer. I'm not like a business guy. But apparently we got a sort of cease and desist threat from MGM, (laughs) like don't do this. So we knew we had to change the protagonist. Yeah. And so... Well, because I guess they were working on, like, Goldeneye and stuff around Probably that time. Probably so, yeah. Now that you mention it. Yeah, but like, anyway. I'm so bad at, like, that, that remembering was, the dates That was N64. That it was right around then. They yeah. were trying to put James Bond in video games, probably, so. So, yeah, they were probably yeah. gun-shy. But so we decided we had to change the protagonist. We were trying different different ways of approaching it. And the thing that seemed obvious to me was to make it a female protagonist. But we were all nervous about it because... You know, we didn't, there wasn't a game out there like that. So we didn't know if that would resonate or not. But we decided to, it was, it, like, the more we thought about it, the more it just seemed like a great fit and a really cool opportunity. So we did it. In retrospect, like, after I played uh, Metal Gear 3 and saw a paramilitary James Bond, that was what we, we could have done. <laughs> that was the super genius idea that made 
t- probably ten times as much money as us. <laughs> and it was super awesome. But anyway, that's my that's my favorite Metal Gear game. Yeah, no, me too. And yeah, they had the advantage of being Metal Gear Solid Three. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so, they, can, I mean... <laughs> they can do whatever they want. Anyway, but, but I, yeah. I think in you know in in hindsight, I'm I'm really glad that we we went the route that we did. And it was it was also the kind of thing where initially um, it was sort of more modern, but then I saw the Avengers remake with uh, Uma Thurman and uh, Sean Connery. No, I that was, was with. Uh, uh, Didn't Sean Connery play the bad guy in the? Maybe he did. Avengers maybe he remake? played the bad guy. The guy yeah. that uh, that made weather Ray Fiennes. Uh, no, oh, it wasn't. Okay. Was it Ray? Fiennes? I can't remember. Yeah, it was Ray Fiennes. I think you're right. That sounds anyway, right to me. Yeah. So. Th- I didn't really my, my care for the movie. To the Avengers is my dad was really into the, the 60s TV show, Avengers yeah. and had it on VHS and stuff when I was growing up. But Emma Peel and so on. And so yeah, forth. Emma Peel is and the original Emma Peel is one of my favorites. But yeah, uh, and, anyway, and and Kate had the uh, the jumpsuit in her yep. original incarnations and Absolutely. everything. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we I saw that movie and I thought the 60s aesthetic. They had a kind of futuristic 60s thing going on. And I thought it was really cool. So I brought that up with the team and kind of convinced them but that was another case we're working with fox they our, our producer in particular really liked the idea of making it literal 60s which we ended up doing and you know initially it seemed like oh we're just taking on a constraint here now we have to do all this research and we have to make it appropriate but for kate it was totally the right thing to do because you put her in this context where she would not have been able to like the character she would have been in the 90s sort of super spy situation would be very different from what she'd have to go through in the 60s. So that seemed like a huge opportunity to make her much more interesting. And that was something that was really interesting. And so, uh, (laughs) full disclosure, uh, Craig and I have done an interview once in the past. It was approximately 10 years ago. Now, it's like, it was in 2005. It was right before Fear came out, basically. And I interviewed you for my zine. Yeah. <laughs> I sent a physical copy to your office and then... I still you were... have two copies of it. <laughs> you were gracious enough to actually get back to me. And so we did an email interview, which, by the way, I'm now extra thankful to you for actually going through with because email interviews kind of suck, I discover now. <laughs> Having to type out all of your answers to questions. It's way nicer just to talk to somebody. Well, I, I like being able to... I tend to ramble a lot when I'm talking, so I like being able to <laughs> be more concise and more... Fair enough. Well, I, I, I appreciate you um, getting back to me uh, then, and it's really cool to, to talk more now. Um, but, you know, something... Um, that that I think was really interesting about Nolf and that I think that we talk, we talked about uh, in in that interview was that you did a lot of interesting subversive things with it. Like I mean, even now it's a it's a going concern talking about like masculinity and misogyny and how female characters are treated in games and how the player relates to them and so on and so forth. And I thought there was some really. Um, there was some meaningful stuff that happened in that Kate, when you were playing as Kate Archer, you were playing as a female character that was very explicitly in a female role, like actively moment to moment, unlike like Samus or something, right? Yeah. Where it's like, well, we say that she's female inside the suit, but you're really just a suit that's running around. Like in the first No One Lives Forever game, there's at least one dialogue tree that is a dude hitting on you, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and, I, I remember it more from Nolf 2 than, than the first game just because I played that game more, but, like, all of your gadgets are these, like, makeup cases and purses and, and you know, lipstick uh, and, and stuff that are very feminine, and it just, it feels very intentional and very, um, 
confrontational, I guess, for it to be like, <laughs> your rocket launcher is going to fold out of your lady's handbag, you know? Um, which I believe is what it was in yeah, Elf 2. Yeah, it was a purse, but... And, and so, like, how... Were you were you, when you were working on the game? Was it one of the, was it the kind of situation where you were you realized you'd signed up to write this, you know, first person female protagonist, and you wanted to push on that stuff in a very intentional way? Or well, the the certainly the context that she was in the the idea that she was like anything she did was treated as second rate, no matter how amazing it was. Right, I thought it was really an int- I thought it was fun. I yeah, it was like fun in the sense of as a storyteller, you like putting your characters through hell. And that that put her through hell, and that made made her story more interesting. Yeah, because early in possibly both of those games, there are situations where she's confronted by her superior, and yeah, kind of has to um, push through their resistance to having her, you know, be assigned to the to the the uh, the crisis that's going on or whatever. Yeah. Right. We, we were a lot easier on her in Elf Two, which I think is one of the shortcomings of that game. Is she just is I think a less interesting protagonist when mm. she's not under as much pressure. But uh, yeah, so that was that was certainly, I think as far as like the gadgets and stuff, that was more a case of just like I said earlier, when we do something, we just want to go all the way with it. Yeah. And so I don't think I mean I, I don't think we I don't remember us thinking that was confrontational. Yeah. Until I mean, after the yeah. fact when <laughs> right. I was. I was in a game store when somebody was bringing back the game because he had to play as a woman and he didn't like that. And, and, and it, was, was it was in an age where you could actually return a PC game yeah, exactly. <laughs> to a store. So that, that's where we, I think, really realized that, okay, yeah, this is probably too off-putting to some people. Which is, I mean, and that's really interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy anecdote that you were just in a store shopping and you just happened to overhear a guy returning your game and explaining why. Like, did you, did you actually... Uh, did you did you just overhear that, or did you like ask the guy why he was bringing it back? Or? I didn't. I I overheard the conversation, and then I asked the clerk, "Has this ever happened before?" And she said, "Oh yeah, it's happened." <laughs> so it wasn't the first one she had dealt with. Wow. So that's yeah. That I mean, that's that's surprising. That's interesting because Kate's on the box. Like I don't yeah. know. It's it's, it's strange. <laughs> um, well, I think like my theory at the time was uh, you know because Tomb Raider was a big. Hit. Yeah, I think the difference is when it's third person. You feel like you're—I I won't go so far as to say you're controlling the woman, but you feel like you're—you have a sort of man-to-woman relationship going on. Yeah. Whereas when you're in first person, it's you are the—you know—the protagonist, and so if it's a woman, you're in a woman's body, and that might make some people feel. Hey, there's no like. There's no. There's nothing romantic going on. Like you're not seduced or anything. We yeah. saved that for Fear, Fear 2's ending, but, <laughs> but then you're a man. Yeah, I mean, but, but there, yeah, there, there's still that, there's that interesting interface with the, with the content, right? Because I think that something it would have been very easy to do, and maybe you feel like you didn't do uh, the job you wanted to with it on Nolf 2, but like, it would have been really easy to put it into an idealized world where, as far as the world and the the characters are concerned it doesn't matter that she's she's female and i think that it seems like a really interesting and i don't know creatively honest kind of decision to like say no we are going to address it and we're going to make it like how we address it is going to be interactive and you're going to have to like you know deal with those aspects of the society that that she's in and we're not just going to kind of you know hand wave it you know and say well She's female because we felt like it, and we're not going to actually like 
we're actually going to write that check and then cash it. You yeah. know, you know what I mean. Well, I think it goes back to like the to me as a storyteller, I always want to put the character in in a challenging situation, and it just felt like the right thing to do to make the the story interesting and to make it relevant too. I mean, I don't think that I had a, again, it's so long ago that I I hesitate to quote my mindset, but I don't, I didn't feel like it was, I I think it was more surprised that it was subversive because to me, she was just a character, just a person that, uh, that people would react that way. Yeah. Did you, was there, was there a difference in the reaction between the first and, and second game? Was, this, was the second game um, adopted much more widely, or did it, did it feel like the audience expanded a lot between the two of them? Or I don't think that uh, the sales were high, like much higher. And, uh, you know, and actually, it's kind of what led to, in a lot of ways, to... Well, specifically, it led to Contract Jack. Right. Because um, at that time, Vivendi owned the... They had bought Fox, and so they owned it, but... They had done some research on the franchise, and they found that the '60s, the comedy, and the female protagonist were the things that were keeping it. From... <laughs> all of its defining features, yeah. all the things that make it unique and interesting, well, what was I, holding it back. <laughs> I think the the reason that the comedy was more of an issue on that project is because Austin Powers. It, this happens to us a lot, where like right. it happened to us with Fear, like where the ring suddenly exploded. Anyway, so with with that, Austin Powers came out, and suddenly we were viewed through the filter of that as a spoof. Right. Where what we were making was not a spoof. It was much more of a, like a, a an homage, I guess. Like, yeah. It was, Nolf 1 is a pretty, it's a bizarre game with sock puppets and all kinds of weirdness, <laughs> but it's a fairly dark game in a lot of ways. And so we, I think the, the spoof thing kind of reflected poorly on us. Sure. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, so I, um, I'll 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 be I'll be geeky a little bit because hopefully there are other people that are listening that want to ask you every single thing about Nolf because <laughs> I feel like uh, and is something is that I feel like you haven't okay so I feel like you personally have been like deeply involved with some really big I don't know like like memorable properties but also I don't feel like you have a really high public profile you know like mm-hmm. I, I think that you've been responsible for some really awesome stuff and people haven't had that many opportunities to ask you <laughs> yeah a bunch of stuff about it um so like who who was the did was did kate have the same voice actor across both games no i didn't think so yeah so we used an actress named kit harris on the first game and then for the sequel we used um she's we, the actress we, we, oh jen taylor okay. she plays cortana and she was she was in AVP2, which is where I first met her, and she was awesome oh, cool. in that. Kind of the reason we did that, there were, there were multiple reasons, but the main one was that we decided to revamp the character visually, and so mm-hmm. changing her voice. But we also thought it was kind of, I don't know, to me it was kind of funny, because if you look at the Bond franchise, you know, you've got Bond as all these different people, right. so we kind of swapped the actor for, <laughs> like, the fictional actor, but it was also the literal actor right anyway we thought it was kind of a meta thing i no, i I like it a lot a it's really interesting that kate archer is also the voice of cortana that's that's fascinating i had no idea uh hot scoops uh for anybody that didn't know um and b yeah i i really loved the um the 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 makeover that kate got in the second game like the entire art style of the second game especially 
I feel like is just super classy and really timeless. Like I, you know, so No Limits Forever Two came out in two thousand two, and I hold that it's maybe the game that visually holds up best out of any game that I know of that came out in in that year or, or right in that 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 time frame because the art style is just really clean and it doesn't rely on like technical gimmicks or anything like the textures are just really sharp and you know you're looking at stuff sometimes you're like well that's kind of low poly or whatever right but i mean aside from from the very specific limitations of poly count and stuff from that era it still just looks like the environments and the characters just look gorgeous and it's because i think they're really nicely art directed and the the characters had like really interesting proportions you know but they weren't you know when you look at magnus versus kate versus mm-hmm. uh i don't know the mime guy yeah. Uh, yeah. and yeah pierre and and so on um it just it it relies on all of the stuff that game graphics technology at that time was actually good at <laughs> and so it that, that i i really feel like it has a timeless look to it which is cool but yeah, I, I feel like in some ways it's just kind of a timeless game in general. I don't know; it's it's held up well. I feel like. Um, have you have you replayed uh, any you know any of your old stuff anytime recently? Do you go back to it? Uh, you know, I I usually don't, but I ended up replaying uh, No One Lives Forever probably about four years ago now, and I I found the gameplay a lot of the gameplay really frustrating and really wanted to go and edit it <laughs> particularly some of the stealth stuff that was just super punishing and then I played Nolf 2 which I think the gameplay overall is a lot better there's still some stuff I'd love to go in and edit but uh, sure but that was where I was a little there were just some missed opportunities with the storytelling things that like kind of we had picked some of the locales and we had you know, sort of had some of the characters figured out, but I hadn't really, I guess, fully processed everything and seen all the opportunities. So there was just sort of like, well, we got to get it done. And then it's after the fact, it's like, ah, oh, that's what I could have done with Isako, for example. She was the, the one I felt like was a missed opportunity. Uh, okay. Yeah, because there were a lot of really memorable scenes in both of those games. I mean, the one that you mentioned already was falling out of the plane and shooting guys while you're falling out of a plane to try to acquire a parachute uh, in the first game, which is sort of a very much a centerpiece moment. And, and it's really silly and not very well done, but we just, <laughs> you know, we thought it was... I think the ending is what saves it, the, the guy, please be filet, please be filet, <laughs> when he's falling. Yeah, and there, there's... But there's... And there's, you know, the the trailer park with the trailer coming apart in the tornado in No One Lives Forever yeah. 2, and, and there are these very inventive interactive sequences that you know fit with the tone of the game and make sense with the story that you're telling but i you know i feel like that's kind of what makes the whole package for those games is not just that it has an enjoyable setting and good writing and characters that you like and etc but also that there are there are interactive sequences that are just as clever you know when to actually play <laughs> which is cool because i feel like you can't, I mean, you can have just one or the other, but that, that doesn't tell the whole story. You know, you know what's interesting to me, when I played uh, No One Lives Forever 2, like, I, I, lo- I love the trailer park, I thought it was, it came out, uh, you know, it, at least as good as we were expecting, which is nice, you know, it's refreshing when that happens, a lot of times it doesn't come out as the way you're expecting, but my favorite part of the whole game is exploring Goodman's house. Yes. 
Except for the fact that we cast a different actor for budgetary reasons, that, mm. that it wasn't the same Goodman, which I, I regret to this day. But I just loved this this sort of sadness of poking around this sad sax house and well, finding his dreams and realizing how sort of pathetic but endearing they are. And that he's not aware that he's being manipulated the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Like, he thinks that he... Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's an interesting... It's sort of a, a moment of... Um, you know, dramatic irony, and that you know more about the situation that he's in than he does. Which is so anyway for for players that for listeners, I guess, uh, and video game players that aren't familiar in No One Lose Forever Two. There's this really interesting level, which uh, coming from me in particular, you won't be surprised that I find it really interesting. But you explore an empty suburban house and find audio uh, recordings from this guy who lived there and try to figure out what happened to him, um, and yeah, like, so, when I've done level design interviews when I was at 2K and when I was at Irrational, they ask, like, what are your favorite video game levels? And the ones that I always call out are the house from No One Lives Forever really? 2 and the house from uh, SWAT 4. Did you ever play SWAT 4? I did play SWAT 4. That, you, that was the... There's a Halloween... It's, it's a It's a suburban house during Halloween and the serial killer lives in the basement. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the only yeah. two AIs are him and his mom yep. in the entire level. Um... And, uh, like, Constantine's Manor from The First Thief, which is just a oh, crazy yeah. mindfuck house. Yeah. Um, and and there's something to me about that that very relatable, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the, the word I'm looking for? You know, like, inhabited space. You know, that familiar living space yep. um, to, to explore in a game because... You hardly ever are, right? Like, yeah. you're so much more often in a facility or on a battlefield or in a, you know, whatever, that it's really interesting playing in a, a place that is like a house that you can imagine having actually been in yourself. And again, obviously, unsurprising, <laughs> unsurprising yeah. coming from, from me, but like, I, I thought that speaking of like messing with expectations, um, that the house in Nolf 2 was really interesting because there were no AIs in it at all until, if I remember, at the very end, yeah. like, you bail out of the basement and yeah. there's, like, bad guys and, yeah. and stuff. But you have this very long sequence where it's just you and an environment, and, again, you, you, you are, you've been playing this first-person shooter for hours and et cetera, et cetera, and you're, you're waiting for somebody, you know, for when's the, the other shoe gonna drop kind mm -hmm. of thing. And you, and you mess with the player in a lot of ways with like clacking shutters and stuff yeah. you know hearing a sound before you can tell what's making it and all that that kind of stuff so how did that it, it felt like a big departure within that campaign you know as a player so did it start out with that as a pitch or or how did that that level come into into being so we uh, we knew we wanted to do Akron Ohio because as we were making the list of places we wanted to go you know we've got India, we've got, you know, basically we're all over in Antarctica. We're all over Japan, the place. Everywhere, yeah, Japan, everywhere. So having Akron on the list was just perfect. So right. we and then we went, that ended up being like a, that was like thrown onto the back of the box and stuff, I yeah. think. Well, it was, it was funny. It was right. just like yeah, the, yeah. the juxtaposition. So we knew that. And then as we started building it, you know, a lot, a lot of times it's sort of an experiential thing. Like you get a rough version and you start running around and you can kind of feel like this is the way it should be paced. So it was kind of that sort of case. There was a lot of the elements were kind of 
understood beforehand, like the the secret, his secret base inside his, you know, with the garage door opener that opens up. And we knew that he was a vacuum cleaner salesman because our art director used to sell vacuum cleaners. He'd always <laughs> tell stories about it. So we put that on to Tom Goodman. That's awesome. So like having the vacuums around and stuff. I don't know. It was just sort of a thing. And then plus we had, you know, we had, as we were developing the game, we had these game mechanics for the stealth, like unscrewing light bulbs that right. just took on a slightly different tone when you were in that house. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. I mean, that's something, that's something that I had wanted to do a little bit more with in Gone Home was having a few more on some like I mean it's one of those things where a lot of times it's you realize at least in a game like like Gone Home you realize it's a bad idea because you came up with it in one very like special case situation you know and and it doesn't really expand out to anywhere else and so okay it probably wasn't a great idea in the first place but yeah something like so you, you've you've played the game, and with anything that you pick up, you can put it back, you know. Yeah. And that's all that's all by hand. Like I just put a volume down, and seriously, yeah, that's you a know? lot of work. I mean, we we made prefabs out of it for most stuff, but anything that was a unique object, you know. Um, and what that meant was after we had that that system set up, which is there's an object and there's a volume, and when you're holding the object, if you click on the volume that is associated with the object, it'll put it back in the center of the volume and, and so on and so forth. Um, the thing I realized, and we did it in a couple of places, mostly it's just like Easter egg stuff, was you could put that trigger volume anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So you could like pick up the candlestick and then on the other side of the house, there's the candle holder that's empty and if you carry the candlestick all the way over there, you can put it in there and then it opens a secret passage or something, yep. right? And in in Gone Home that was so special case that it was just really puzzly and we didn't want to do puzzles yeah. but on the other hand it 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 is really cool like it sounds well, like you did some of that with the cassette players like, yeah yeah idea. which was yeah which was similar but it was also a system you know it's like uh-huh. you can take any tape and put it in any tape player and so it's, it was very specific to that and, it, and it's readable you know as a player you're like oh tapes work yep. this way you're not like this candle this one can be taken to this one candle holder right, right. and etc. But um, it sounds like it happened in the opposite direction with the house in Alf 2 where it's like, well, we have these mechanics for, yeah, like unscrewing light bulbs or could you like blow out candles and stuff in... I don't remember. I forget, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that I've done that in some games. Um, yeah. But but yeah, and then... I don't think so. But yeah, it's but, but it's, it's one of those things that is great in game design where you're like, well, we made this thing you can do for this other reason... But in this context, that's unique. If we put it here, it would it would say something different, which yeah. is which is really cool. Because the thing that I that I wondered was if that if that level had already always been intended not to have any enemies in it, like from the beginning. I think it was intended not to have any enemies in it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But I again, I don't trust my right because well, it, it, it when when you're working on a shooter, I've found that it's always hard, except with like the intro to pitch any significant amount of time where there's not a shootout in it, you know, like to say, okay, for this whole part, there aren't going to be any enemies, you know. Um, To me, it's what makes, it's what separates a great shooter from a a merely okay one. Like, I don't mind games that are all constant action when they're really well done, but at the same time, Half-Life is one of my favorite shooters of all time, and that has big stretches where there's no combat at all, and it's 
it's because they took I remember the, the interviews at the time they were saying they were kind of going off the Nintendo thing of just make the world fun to explore with no enemies in it and then when you add enemies hopefully it supplements yeah but I, I think that 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 makes combat more special when it's not constant yeah yeah and in a property like Nolf uh, one handle that you had for that was stealth where it's like there could be enemies but you're using stealth so you're not engaging in just like wild combat with them every time that you see an AI so you kind of there's a spectrum there right yeah. that you could that you could deal with well I'm a big fan of making it player initiated because I think once you start forcing combat on players it loses a lot of its appeal like it starts to feel more mechanical in a yeah. way yeah well and when you're when you're a player and you're just reacting it's not even interesting right because it's like you walk into a space and dudes just start shooting at you and it's like okay well you're going to go dive behind the nearest piece of cover yeah like that's not really inter- interesting you know like if you have some mechanic to like lose them yeah and then re-engage that's cool but then you're in the situation where why didn't you just get to start the engagement in the first place right like, there, there are cases like I, i'm i can't help but like try and think of exceptions and i yeah i mean like i enjoy the call of duty games and i think that it's just because they're so polished and so well done and it's so satisfying to pull the trigger because the the animation everything is just really refined yeah so I don't get... There are campaigns that are also short, so I usually don't get bored in those. But uh, when it's not done with that level of polish, it can just get really tedious really fast. Yeah. So, so all, so, so yeah, I want to ask about, considering the title of the podcast and everything, like how it sounds like you arrived at the tone of No One Lives Forever organically, where it didn't start out with, yeah, like a a statement of principles or or whatever that we're like we're gonna make it funny but also stealth and also action sort of like that feeling grew as you were putting the game together we kind of had a mission statement but okay. yeah it it definitely evolved as we went and so the thing that i think is interesting about known lives forever and that is like a similar thing that people bring up with um, like Uncharted or something is that when I would play Nolf I wouldn't be great at stealth and I would silence machine gun a lot of people like Kate killed a lot of people yeah. uh, and, and I, I felt like I felt like the, the tone still worked but it seems like a difficult um, situation to be in where you have to say like okay we're gonna make it funny and lighthearted, but also acknowledge that you might have just headshotted like 20 guys and and evaporated their bodies you know it's it's uh, it's definitely part of why fear we set out to make enemies that you wouldn't feel bad about because we all felt you know you write dialogue for a character and you you've got him walking down the hall and he's talking about his band and then you kill him yeah you're like ah, i just killed that guy's dreams it just <laughs> feels a little wrong yeah and even some of the guys that are saying things that are kind of like bad guy things they're still kind of endearing I, to me at least so well, I think that you intentionally wanted to make them uh, sound you know not not exactly likable but not I so I just wanted them to be human I just wanted yeah. them to have their own lives I, I always think the best villains are the heroes of their own story so yeah. I, I just I liked all these guys and so you know gunning them down felt a little eh, a little wrong but we in fear we sort of said okay let's just make enemies that are fun to kill that you don't have any qualms about they're just clones you don't have to feel any moral right. quandary here did they I forget um, did Kate have 
she didn't have any fully non-lethal options, really, right? Oh, yeah, you could sneak through Nolf, too. Well, you could sneak, but could you, like, permanently knock a guy out? You couldn't permanently, but okay. you could stealth, you could uh, tranquilize them, and they'd stay out for okay. a while. They'd wake yeah. back up, so it, it made the game a lot harder. Right, yeah. But it wasn't, uh, like, I, it was, you know, I played, so one of the things that happened is after we finished Nolf, I played both um, the original Commandos, which is this sort of stealth RTS kind of thing. Yeah, it's like an isometric thing. Yeah, isometric mm-hmm. stealth game, which is super punishing, just like yeah. Elf was. Like, was if you really screw hard, up, you're yeah. restarting. Yeah. And so I got I finished the game, but I was really... I finished it out of frustration. Like, <laughs> I, I refused to be... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I refused to be defeated. But then I also played uh, Metal Gear Solid around the same time and realized, okay, this is how you do stealth. Like, you make it recoverable. You make it so that it remains an option. But I like the fact that they made it harder. Like, if you tranquilize a guy and somebody comes along, he's going to wake him up, and that guy's going to... Now they're both going to be alert. Yeah. So that was sort of the philosophy there. I do love games, though, that let you... Like, Thief is a good example. They let you knock a guy out, and he's just out. Right. That's a lot less stressful as a player, but yeah. there's something about the stress that I also like. So. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, my personal sensibilities as a player are... I appreciate the, the fact of a non-lethal playthrough being harder and it but and there are a lot of different ways to make it harder like i and yeah in thief or in dishonored most recently i really appreciate that the difficulty is more about being resource constrained or like the non-lethal thing taking longer you know like to choke a guy out takes more time than to stab him but also makes less noise so that's an upside or like tranquilizer darts are really in in uh short short supply Um, but if you can shoot shoot a guy while he's unaware, it only takes one to knock him out. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And then yeah, because I just I personally have an allergy to guys waking back up after I've neutralized <laughs> them. Because and I think in all of it, it made me just like, all right, I'm just gonna kill everybody because then yeah. they're, then they're they're I don't have to worry about them them anymore. Um, I think in but, you know if I were to edit the game now, I would probably change that. I, and there's certainly things like there was levels that would get resupplied with enemies. Yeah, which, there, there was respawning for sure. Yeah, yeah. that was uh, even at the time. I kind of whatever. I mean, I can I can understand that on some level though, because like you were saying, with just the level of tension, like if when you have a fully depopulated level, obviously in some cases it's an intentional creative choice. And I think that there is a certain satisfaction to being able to say, okay, I cleared everyone on yep. this level and now it's yep. empty, I'm going to go sweep everything up. But also it does have the, the opposite effect of now you don't have to worry about anything anymore and all tension is lost because you know you're totally safe until you leave. But which... I think as long as you feel like you accomplished it, then it's your reward and you expect it. And yeah. when it doesn't happen because of an arbitrary game design choice right. that I regret that uh, <laughs> you resent it and so I think that's a case where like it added some variety to the equation but I don't think it was in a good way yeah well, something, so something that I feel like tonally between Nolf 1 and 2 and I think you mentioned this as well is that Nolf 2 for me it both felt that like the world and the characters, at least as I remember it, both felt like more robust and believable, but also overall was a lot wackier. You it know, is a lot wackier. Like like there there were cube men. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, yep. The 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 oh god damn it the man. I mean they were 
God, I, I remember when they so, introduced you to that machine and there's like a whole, uh, yeah. uh, like intro that's like a game show, yep. uh, with all the man puns. It's yep. so, it's really, it's really great and I love it. And also it's like more over the top than I think the first game was. So is it like, did you make a personal decision to, to push that stuff further? Or did it all just kind of happen as you went along and came up with funny gags? So there's a, an interesting dynamic that happens on a project sometimes. And it definitely happened on that one where, our animator at the time, Scott Alba, is one of the most talented guys I've ever worked with in the industry. So he's the guy. He did all the models and he did all the animations. So like the mime, the mime sequence where the mime comes in and is trying to communicate with Pierre and Pierre can't guess it. Yeah. Because of course they aren't very good mimes. <laughs> that was all Scott. Like all the facial animation, which at the time, and I still think it holds up. It, yeah. It's great, great stuff, and it has so much personality. That all came from Scott. Yeah. Scott has a really weird sense of humor, and I love <laughs> to make him laugh. So there was a lot of stuff that I know for a fact, even though I wasn't probably aware of it at the time, I was doing just to crack him up. <laughs> so I think like the uh, the man crates was absolutely, I wanted to amuse Scott. And I think he was probably a little actually freaked out by it because it was so insane. But that was also what I They're I creepy and it. dark. You, yeah, they're you, really weird. Like they're, they're introduced kind of tragic as figures. a gag. But then, yeah, you, you just come across them in a storage room in yep. the base and they try to bite you. Yeah. <laughs> And it's they're still like they still have some kind of life, but it's not a very happy one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it it has that. I think that that's something that I feel like. I don't know. I I mean, I'm thinking of it in terms of games, but I think it's probably true of a lot of fiction and entertainment that people connect with. That it covers that whole spectrum of being dark but funny and serious, but also not taking itself that seriously. And, you know, like, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm reading Infinite Jest right now, the first time I've, I've read it, and, you know, one chapter to the next, it'll be completely absurd and, and, and just kind of lampooning itself and then be very dark and, and heavy and have mundanity in it, you know, and I think that... Like, did you get to points when, when you were working on the game, where something went in and it went too far in one direction or the other, and and you intentionally were like, I've got to pull back from the darkness or the wackiness or whatever to like keep it within, you know, that 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 zone. <laughs> no, I can't say that. <laughs> I, I'm. I think I mentioned I'm a big fan of Hong Kong movies, mm-hmm. and one of the things I love, like one of my favorite ones, is Feng Saiyuk. There's also like Swordsman too. There's, there's this a, a lot of these films will go from total like slapstick humor to sudden like high super over the top melodramatic tragedy. Yeah, in a heartbeat, like it's just instantly like one scene to the next. Suddenly it's the guy's crying and his friends died and he's like vowing revenge. To me, it's seamless. I just think it's all part of the package, and I love the the freedom. Yeah, of it. But uh, I think a lot of people find it jarring, but. I think part of that, part of why I respond to it is also evident in the stuff that I do where I just don't really, I mean, it's, I'm kind of answering this in my head as I'm talking. So like, certainly like in the case of something like Betrayer, I think that there's a much, there's much more tonal consistency because there needs to be, but even in Fear, you know, we threw in, um, what's his name? Yeah, Norton Norton Mapes. Mapes, Norton Mapes is just sort of. A weird sort of out of the blue thing and I, I felt like at the time that he really needed to be there just to break up the the tension of it 
but he's he's a weird fit. Yeah, he's not a normal <laughs> thing well, but, for that type of yeah. Game. But I mean, also there's there's just there is actual levity between your squad mates and stuff. Like sometimes they're being they're being uh, serious, but sometimes you know like. Jankowski was kind of like a glib dude, and you know um, the Korean woman whose name I'm forgetting now. Jin, um, Jin? yeah. Jin, yeah. Um, you know she 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 was dry, but would kind of be like sarcastic, funny in a sarcastic way occasionally and stuff. And I think that not losing sight of the texture of interacting with an actual human being, <laughs> you know, where like someone might say something very funny and then it reminds them of something that's very serious and they have all of those aspects to them and they're actually expressed. I think it's something that you don't see a whole lot in a lot of games where you have the very gruff protagonist who has only one mode and that's to be gruff protagonist all the time. Um, and and so I, I think that it's interesting to see how, yeah, even within a premise like Fear that is much more of, like, a, you know, serious kind of horror, or not really horror, but, you know, like, supernatural action um, kind of frame. I don't know, when I was playing it, I still felt like I was like, I can see how the guy who wrote No One Lives Forever wrote this, because it's maintained that sensibility mm-hmm. of having having people have, like, multiple sides of their personalities that are being expressed you know from one line of dialogue to the next yeah I, I as i'm thinking about fear i can remember some some stuff that yeah probably does that a little bit but yeah i, I do think i was a little bit out of my comfort zone with the the sort of more military sort of aspect of it yeah. that uh i remember i i know mark laidlaw over at valve and uh, i showed him the game at one point and he was very sort of polite but <laughs> he he's referred to yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he named some other writer that's over there. That he handles all the military stuff because he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, point taken. <laughs> yeah, I'm making it up. But at the same time, you know, that that's it's sort of a downplayed part of the game. It, probably partly because of Mark's feedback, actually. I take his feedback pretty seriously. So, yeah, you went from Nolf to Fear. Um, and like you were saying, it was an intentional turn towards saying, okay, if we got to pick what we wanted to base our own game on, it would be be these things. Um, what, like, did, how much did that evolve, how much of the specifics of, like, the, the game and the, well, obviously the campaign and the actual levels and stuff changed a lot over development, but I just mean the premise and the characters and stuff like that. Um, was it a, a very different game when you first pitched it? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a much more... So when we we very first pitched it, it was more of a an action, slightly sci-fi game, um, which it still is. It's got a proton cannon. You can turn a guy into a skeleton. I, it was it was even more a little more speculative and futuristic, a little bit fantastical. Um, I'd kind of equate it to what's a good example? Maybe maybe sort of Ghost in the Shell, where it's mm. it's grounded, but it's definitely fantastical. Like okay. there's stuff that just doesn't exist now, and it's. This kind of a cool extrapolation that probably won't be how it turns out, but it doesn't matter. You mean like technologically, like technologically, more like cyberpunkish yeah. kind of stuff? Or yeah, it wasn't so much cyberpunk per se. It was more about the the world, like just the architecture. And the, oh, okay. It was it was a little bit more uh, lush and regal and 
Okay. Anyway, it was it was there was more invention to it, but it kind of sounds sorry like um, yeah like the the way that they went with um, Deus Ex Three, where they where they kind of had like that um, yeah there's that sort of uh, sort like of decorative a, yeah like almost this like Renaissance kind of feel and yeah like sort of the the Blade Runner ish like Art Deco y kind of like details, but also Blade Runner is yeah. a great example where it's. I mean, it's it does feel very plausible, but at the same time, it is very fantastical yeah. in a cool, grounded sort of way. Yeah, because so fear was, ended up being very like present day, literal, like you know, warehousey. Yeah. You know? yeah. So there, there were a few things that happened. One is that uh, you know we were like I mentioned, we were on new tech that we didn't really know what we could do with and what we couldn't do with, which turned out to be a, a learning process that we never really got a handle on. So well, we you, also had yeah, a new you, team. You guys were all real-time lighting, and that yeah, that, was, that limits uh, draw distances, character counts, yep. everything. It was much. it was a it was a really it was it was very tough. Yeah, yeah. So uh, th- that happened. Also, you know, we were doing some uh, pre-production art and trying to, to build the world, but it was just it was taking too long, and it wasn't really coming together. Mm. And it's the kind of thing where, to me, like. You know, I, I look at a lot of films that come out, and I can kind of guess this thing's probably not going to find a big enough audience because it's just they haven't got it to the point where it's relatable. Yeah. Like the the thing, I, like Star Wars is probably one of the most indelible films of my life. I saw it when I was ten years old, and it just changed everything. And part of it was that it's and it still to me holds up to this day, where it just feels like a completely lived-in universe. Yeah. It has personality. It's very grounded and relatable, but it's. It's fantastical at the same time, and yeah. that's kind of what we wanted to do. And we weren't hitting it, so we just decided, okay, let's let's not go down this route because we're not going to do it well, and, and we're going to fail. It'd be better to do something we feel like we can do well, which even that proved to be way harder than we thought. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So that happened, and as we're exploring the tech and realizing how dark the game was going to have to be, just because we could only have like two lights in the scene, right? That's where it started to become apparent that adding the sort of supernatural horror element to it was was a way to make it feel purposeful and not huh. just like a shortcoming. Right. So that's that's where it became that. And, of course, at the time I was hugely into, like I discovered all kinds of films, like Pulse is one of my favorites by mm-hmm. uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, and there's just tons of them that I'd seen. So I got the, I pitched the team, like, let's, let's, let's look at this type of horror, which is ghost stories that are very grounded in mundane settings and that's part of what's I mean to some degree it's done for budgetary reasons like you can film in an apartment complex costs a lot less than building a haunted mansion but we we all know what an apartment complex is like we can all relate to it whereas haunted mansions those are kind of fantastical and you don't it doesn't feel as immediate so it seemed like a great opportunity but again like right then that's when Asian horror exploded in the US and it became a cliche by the time we were done so it's kind of like, oh, these guys are just cashing in. It's like, well, we were trying to ride the wave. It's just game development takes a so long. Yeah. By the time we got there, the wave had crested, and we were sort of paddling along <laughs> in the wake of, of uh, Samara and Sadako and all the others. Right. Well, it's it's interesting that that yeah that I mean, with something that was, it really felt like that beyond the. Hong Kong action or the you know like high tech military stuff that that the 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 supernatural and the the ring esque uh, aspect became like the biggest identifier for mm-hmm. for for the game 
it's just interesting how sometimes that's how it goes. You know, like yep. you're the thing that you started with, it's still for all intents and purposes, 90% of what the game is, but there's this X factor that you didn't see coming that's added on midway through. And that is what everyone identifies yep. with. Um, so before that, it was, it was the kind of the framework of like the, there was a sort of psychic component. So there was, a, you know, some made up stuff, but the, the whole like scary part didn't come until later. Something that you mentioned earlier, um, was that in comparison to the Nolf games, a big challenge was making the protagonist of fear a uh, non-speaking, just a totally silent protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, totally arbitrary decision. That yeah, it was something you, just, you decided to do. Um, but do you feel do you feel like it allowed you to do some interesting stuff? Like, I mean, obviously it was a challenge, but were there advantages to not having the character have a voice? Uh, I think that really the only. So one of the reasons we did this is that uh, I was the one that did all the cutscenes on the past game, but I also did a lot of the level design. Mm-hmm. So the cutscenes ended up taking a, a huge amount of time. So it was kind of like, okay, well, what if we do this fully first-person, fully experiential thing where there's no cutscenes and there's yeah. no... You have, the, you have the very slight classic first-person cutscene where there has to be a reason for it. Like yeah. you got knocked on your ass or you're in a car or something. And yep. then, yeah. But then... Just, just try it. But it sort of became a, an albatross in a lot of ways. It, it's hard to say in retrospect if it was good or bad. But I mean, the game was it was the best selling game that we did, and it, a lot of people liked it. So I yeah. guess it, it worked out in some ways. I mean, it has some of the best some of the best weapons in a first person shooter, just as far as like the actual tuning and everything, but also the feedback, like the AV feedback. The, the, the one thing that we did, and stuff, like. yeah, I, I think the semi-auto weapons feel pretty good. The one thing we did, this is like the kind of stupid mentality you get when you're a shoestring budget developer, like we were at Monolith. We had an issue where when we play rapid fire sounds quickly, they would just get destroyed. Like you'd basically they'd get phased and out of sequence, and it was terrible. So the rather than just fixing it. Which we ended up doing finally on Gotham City Imposters Evolved. No, actually, maybe we fixed it on Fear 2 when I, when I went over to help on that. I think that was where I finally put my foot down and said, we got to fix this. But rather than fixing it, we just made the weapon sounds loop, which means that the sounds are, are pretty good, but they aren't in sequence with every shot. So like you can be firing more shots than you're actually mm-hmm. hearing or vice versa. I see. And I think it gives a little bit of squishiness to the sub the, like submachine gun and the assault rifle that... I wish in retrospect that we just fixed the damn bug. Yeah. Well, it, it played to my interest as a player because I always... The only weapons I pretty much ever use are pistol, shotgun, and, like, bolt-action rifle in yep. games. Or, like, the, the plasma well, the, cannon. And, I thought that... I, I love the semi-auto rifle in, in beer. I thought that was one of my favorite weapons. Yeah. So, the yeah, you're right. The, the I, I'm, I always just really appreciate it when a pistol in an FPS feels really substantial and it's like, like it's worth using and it was really useful in fear especially early on but it's like you could get really good headshots with it and then when you got two of them it was actually you could put out a lot of damage um with a fair amount of ammo that's the john wood thing like i yeah there's no point in having double pistols if they're not going to be fun to use yeah because so many games i feel like you know fps games that have the classic arc of just your firepower increases as the game goes on the pistol is just such a throwaway. It's just like, okay, here's some piece of crap that I used for the first hour, and then you 
never touch it again because yeah. it's bad. Um, <laughs> so and and it feels like the design or the, you know the developers feel that way too. Where they're like, oh, we don't need to make that good because nobody's going to use it once they get the SMG or, or yeah. whatever. So I, I appreciated that the pistol felt like it had a lot of love uh, in <laughs> in fear. Yeah, my my feeling, especially at that time, we'd kind of sort of come into the mindset of there's no point in doing a weapon because it costs so much to do yeah no point in doing it unless it's going to really be a viable option for the player so we just tried to make sure that everything had its own function and i think that's something that we've tried to stick to ever since yeah something that that i thought i guess another place where i felt or i thought to myself yeah this is somebody from i can i can feel the Nolf vibe in this game was when you spend some time um escorting Alice the mm-hmm. the the main bad scientist's uh, yep. grown daughter and she's a really good character and it's just like she's not on screen a whole lot and there's not a ton to her but she's presented in a way that yeah is very grounded and human and she's just sort of this believable person that just is in a t-shirt and running around and like reacting to the world that's something that, that I feel like was valuable about that character and a lot of characters in games is when they actually like good ones is when they actually react to the game world in the way you might expect a human that's in that situation to react to it and not the way that like a guns blazing sci-fi hero would Um, because Alice she comes late in the game and it's like an escort mission kind of thing but I don't think she can die I think it's more about you surviving Um, and she's like the most normal person I guess you know she's not like a trained fear operative or crazy Norton Mapes like scientist weirdo or, or anything um, and she's in the middle of all this stuff and I thought that it was really really admirable how she she was believable in that you know whatever half hour that, that she was in the game that's good I'm yeah. glad you felt that way that's something that I think we always try like even with Nolf like it's a very larger than life game but I think what kept it from being a spoof in our eyes is that the characters believe it all like right. they take it all seriously and I think that that helps to ground them and I, th- I think the specificity also is what separates a, a believable universe from a sort of more generic one so it's something we always strive to do for sure yeah I, I think you're definitely right it's like you can have a crazy world but the the characters all have to believe in it yeah. and it's it's the player's job to see it from the outside but the characters have to see it from the inside you know yeah. and then I think yeah you're right that's, it's kind of like how um, there's a show that I've been watching with my wife it's on Japanese TV but because it's in Japanese and I don't speak the language very uh, haltingly at best and, and mostly food anyway there's <laughs> There's a couple of scenes that I saw recently, and because I'm, again, because I'm not understanding the language, I'm more reacting to the visuals, but it really makes it clear, like, how the scene will become emotional, not because of what the characters are saying, but because of a reaction shot, and I think that that applies to games, too. It's that, it's like you see a a character have a reaction to something, and it creates an empathetic response where you start to feel, like oh, wow, that, that is kind of sad. Like, it just sort of triggers something in you. And I think having a character that is more grounded in the in the game world helps you to believe that it's... Not that it's a real place, but at least that it could be, or that... Uh, it's hard to explain, but... Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like suspension of disbelief, right? It's yeah. like internal consistency that you don't have to be broken out of the experience because there isn't something in the thing that yeah. is kind of waving his hands and saying, you know, this isn't real. It's like, no, everything within the frame is acting as if this is 
a, a, a legitimate you know thing that's going on you know and the interesting thing about that too because i'm now i'm thinking of uh one of my favorite things in Nolf too is um what's his name can't believe I'm forgetting his name. It's been a long time. Terrence, as noted. <laughs> Terrence Sloggins. So Terrence Sloggins is the ultimate fourth wall breaking character. But I, I think that in a game because they're so long, you can actually get away with breaking the fourth wall periodically as long and, and you can get back to a mode where people can be totally in the moment and everybody believing it. And you the player I think can make that that leap. But Terrence Sloggins, whenever he's in the like we invented him, he's a made up guy but we treated him like he was a real actor like we introduced him we gave him his own credits right. he's actually he has an imdb listing as an actor <laughs> i invented a person i'm so proud of that anyway so he whenever he's on the screen he's looking at the camera and just sort of he's a terrible terrible actor and there's even a scene where you can overhear the director on the phone with his agent complaining about what a terrible actor this guy is <laughs> but i think again like you can you can get away with that in a game because games are so long for the most part that players will sort of recover from that and then be back into like as long as the, as you have an impactful scene where it's again it's sort of a squishy thing where I'm having a hard time perfectly articulating it but I think that when it matters when it it's important that everybody believes in the world that everybody does but it's okay if like five minutes later you've got a character who's like Norton Mapes I think breaks the fourth wall a little bit every time he's there because he's just he's a little cartoony right but I don't know yeah I mean maybe I'm just making it up it's hard to know too as a designer there's kind of what you you think is going to happen and then players responses is totally based on their past experiences and their tolerance of different storytelling devices and so on yeah definitely we've had I mean I know that there have been a lot of reactions to Gone Home where people people respond to it as if the way we were like manipulating the player was very deliberate and like oh the way that you set it up so I'd feel this way when I got right to this point it was like that's cool that's the end result <laughs> <laughs> but as the designer we just you know like we were touching every part of the game all throughout development and it's just sort of this process of accretion and layering and it's just it ended up being what it was but you know from the designer's side all of the small pieces add up to this thing but then the player only sees the final product and so it's much easier to read in and say like this was perfectly planned out you know in this exact way and that's why it had that effect on, on me and as the designer you you don't have that perspective so you can't necessarily predict where people are really going to connect with this one thing because you've only seen it when it was in gray box and right, then right. half there and then you added that one thing at the end but you didn't really think it was that important but to the player it is you know so well, I think what you're doing in uh, Gone Home is interesting too because there is so much left to inference. Like the whole thing with uh, Mason, like yeah. when you when you finally open the safe and you're reading the his, the letter to his sister that she returned, and he's talking about the things he's done. Like he he's never explained what he did, as yeah. far as I could tell. Not explicitly. So you, yeah. you have to sort of infer, and I think you're doing that a lot where there's reading between the lines, and I think that's really powerful. But as a designer. You probably, I'm guessing, you probably knew what he did, yeah, and you had it all mapped out. So it's hard to tell how much is enough and what's going to work, yeah. Which is kind of exciting at the same time. Yeah, it is. I think there's more leeway when you have something that's more deep in the backstory. You know, like yeah. Uncle Oscar. If you don't understand what went on with him, you don't really lose anything. Right. Whereas if you don't understand what happened between Act Two and Act Three for Sam, then you've really lost something because yeah, you just lost true. the plot. 
And yeah. so, yeah, there's more freedom when you're like, well, if you dig and if you do all the detective work, we'll reward you for doing the extra credit basically yeah. on this guy um, and concentrate on making sure that, that the thread stays unbroken for the stuff that's like very, you know, foregrounded. Um, two geeky things. One, uh, I was, when I was playing, when I was replaying, I think, No One Lives Forever 2, uh, there's a part where you're partnered with Magnus and he's following you around and I shot him and it just cuts instantly to a game over screen and the text says, Magnus punched you so hard that you died. The game over. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was my favorite. And secondly, um, the final confrontation with um, with Paxton Fettel in Fear, I thought was a really great um, subversion of expectations. Where you know you, th- this guy has, you know, he's he's been the antagonist of the whole thing, and he's got this psychic bond with you, and he's like. You know, in in a lot of games, you might expect that it would be like a big boss fight or, or whatever, and then a sort of like I don't know, psycho or something. You find that the girl that you've been protecting, that you were trying to get to, you know, to keep her out of harm's way, has has been killed, and you couldn't do anything about it. And b you take down the main antagonist in in the game just with a single bullet, you know, in the back, mm-hmm. um, and he just slumps over and and. I think that was a really effective choice. Like, how did you get to that? You know, because it's so simple. The implementation is so simple. Like, what was was that a hard resolution to come to as far as, like, figuring out the story points? Or was that something you wanted to do earlier? Well, so the, the story of, of Alma, we, you know, that was something that was sort of figured out earlier on. Um, the uh, this is kind of why I, I think of myself. I'm more proud of myself as an editor than as a designer because I think that what really makes a, a game memorable is a lot of times is the result of something that didn't work out and that it's coming up with a creative solution. And I don't even remember a lot, a lot of times where the solution came from. I don't really care as long as it's the right choice which is why it's great to be surrounded by a team of really passionate, creative people because you just get a pool of ideas and then you get to take credit for all of them. <laughs> but uh, actually, I, I generally try not to because I know that most of the good ideas just come from wherever and it's just it's just a matter of recognizing them. So there was a, a, an attempt at a boss fight with Fettel. It was more of a like run around in the dark and he runs up and hits you and runs away kind of thing. And it was terrible. It was not going to work. So it was a prototype that didn't work. So then it became, well, how do we resolve this in a way that's that's interesting and, and memorable and that just sort of evolved into that. I don't remember. I kind of feel like maybe our producer, Chris Hewitt, came up with the idea, but I'm not sure. Yeah. It's such an organic thing that, that we just... Like, there was a... At the beginning of Fear, we ended up going to this place that was called the Pacific Institute, which it's kind of a cognitive psychology thing, but it's it's about goal setting and about follow through and all that. But the thing, the main thing we took away from it is the metaphor that they used of you're working with this lump of clay and and we're all working with it together. And as it starts to take form, like we can see what it's becoming. And then that's the part where it, so like that's sort of become the the way that we develop is focus on the game you're making and don't worry about the game you thought you were going to make when it was all on paper because it's not going to be that and half of what you thought was going to be cool is not going to be cool so just concentrate on making this good and the best way to do that is to get it playable quickly so that you can start actually 
you get everybody reacting to it and then you can see what's working and what's not so i think that that's kind of how we ended up with something like fettle is like okay that, what we were trying wasn't working let's work with the clay what what would make sense here what would make sense in the story what would make sense with the tone but it certainly wasn't planned out from the beginning that way yeah and then like with uh, alma that that story beat was like the notion of it was but that's another case where like probably like two years after we shipped the game I suddenly like it all clicked like how we could have done that game in a, a way that would have been really powerful hmm. that it would have tie, made it a little bit more of a folktale sort of feel because that's kind of what it was it was a, a subversion of the rescue the princess story where right. I realized that the princess is already dead and she's actually the monster right right but I think with a more explicit sort of fairy tale sort of quality to it where you really got the sense that this is princess peach that you're going after not like in that kind yeah, of extreme yeah. sense but that it, but structurally yeah. it would have been really prof- powerful potentially but you know whatever this <laughs> this ship sailed and uh, that's always the way it is it's always like ah, now 15 years too late i suddenly know how to do it yeah no i've 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 had that <laughs> in a couple of places uh luckily it hasn't been big things for the most part but yeah that one was a pretty big one it was yeah. just like ah that would have changed everything well i thought fear was cool so. that's good no i'm glad <laughs> I, and i i tend to be really uh super analytical about the stuff i do and so not not critical in a way that i i hate it and i want to tear it apart and not like in a precious kind of artist sort of way yeah. but more in just a how could we, how could we have done that better what can we learn from that what can yeah. we improve so um so let's 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 fast forward to the present yeah. you are you are no longer working in monolith you are now uh at black powder games which is a new indie studio that's you and five other guys five did, and a half yeah uh, part-time animator. Okay, <laughs> thought you were like five and a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, um, child labor or <laughs> magic trick gone bad, something like that. Um, so, did all of you work together at Monolith? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, three of us have been working together since Shogo. Then uh, David, our art director, joined us on No One Lives Forever, and then uh, Larry, we hired as a originally as an art lead, but then he kind of moved into producer role and that was for numerous projects that we never actually finished yeah, yeah. well we and they, they never actually kind of took off when we were still there and then uh and then um there's an artist Blake Hirsch that we I don't know if any of the other guys worked with him previously I think the first game I worked on him with was uh Fear 2 okay when we were helping out on that but uh, certainly on Gotham City Imposters he was a big part of the tone of that game cool so so yeah you you guys you said that um about a year ago you started working on your first title yep. and it's called Betrayer and I'll give you my outside uh, uh summation of it which is it takes place um in let's say like the 16th 17th century 17th okay. beginning of the 17th and and it's it's sort of uh the the new world um you know it's it's america as the spanish had first started landing and exploring and taking over and and um you play as a guy who wakes up on a beach and you start to explore this this very wild landscape and there are these sort of um yeah supernaturally maybe possessed conquistadors that are wandering around there are these abandoned forts and 
yeah, it's about trying to, to figure out, you know, what all is going on in in this 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 very this barely uh, uh, explored wilderness with yeah these these supernatural forces and it's a shooter game but it's not like a crazy fast paced shooter game it's like you're firing muskets and bows and arrows and stuff yeah so um, so how did how did that how did that project start like was was it one of these things where you're like I want to do you know conquistadors and, and let's figure it out or no it, uh, so I've been wanting to do a game set in the 18th century for a while like I, I read uh, Bernard Cornwell's sharp series which if you've never read those they were just awesome I haven't. super entertaining okay. they're kind of like uh, there's during the Napoleonic Wars mm. and they're just like James Bond meets Conan in the Napoleonic Wars like they have that kind of pulp quality but yeah. they're they're well written and they're funny and they're cool and Sharp's a great character okay. anyway so there was that and then uh, the same friend who turned me on to those turned me on to uh, the Horatio Hornblower books by mm. C.S. Forster which are totally awesome too Except for one of them, which is a total downer, but you can skip that one. That was, I think it's one of the last two. Okay. Anyway, that aside, I love the era. I think that there's, there, it's just something I didn't really know much about, and I always thought it was kind of boring, but it's not at all. There's, there's just a lot to work with. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of take the, the the visuals of that time period and the weaponry and make a game around it, but you're never going to do that at a big studio unless, I mean, I guess Ubisoft did it with Assassin's Creed, but. Right. We didn't feel like we were ever going to do it. So it was just sort of a suppressed desire. Yeah. So once we were looking at what what can we pull off with this small group of guys, you know, we decided, well, let's just focus on a small um, small arsenal that we feel like we can actually do and that would be fun. Like, I love bows and games, so bow was a natural fit. I wanted to do a musket forever, so a musket was a natural fit. I, lo- I love throwing axes and throwing knives and stuff, so that tomahawk was... So then it was a question of, okay, well, this is our arsenal. So that kind of puts us somewhere in this, like, 300-year period. Then we kind of came up with the idea, okay, maybe there's an abandoned settlement. Like, we knew we wanted to do wilderness, partly because we've been wanting to do outdoor settings for many years. Like, ever <laughs> since Nolf, too, yeah. we, we didn't want to go back indoors. Yeah. And so we did, and we spent a lot of time there. So we wanted to do kind of a wilderness area, and we also thought that we could pull it off fairly well with a small team. Yeah. So there was kind of that, and then the notion of an abandoned settlement where we wouldn't have to make a bunch of characters, but we could have some sort of like ghost-like things that we could, you know, sort of a like what's in the fridge? Like what can we what can we make stuff out of? Right. And then it's a question of okay, well, how would this all fit together? And it's it's basically been continuing to do that and continue to reevaluate it and kind of distill it and figure it out as we go, and so. It's it's metamorphosed a fair amount, but now it's sort of settled into its current form, and that's what it'll remain. Yeah. What is so? It's a it's a single player only yep. game, and yeah, it's at this point PC download uh, yep. specifically. Um, and so yeah, is it is your vision that it is a you know self contained like linear story campaign, or is the structure more about like being at this settlement and going out and returning to it like um, what is the like is this a game where you said I want to tell a story with this game or is it more about like the setting and the and the background and discovering that so I'll give you the honest version which probably <laughs> isn't the best PR but it's just the truth that's fine which is that originally I had an idea for a game that I wanted to make and the more I started to kind of like draw it out the more I was like okay this is not going to be tenable with this small amount of people 
what could we do as a stepping stone to get there? And so then it kind of became, okay, well, what could we do smaller, self-contained? And then it started to become its own exciting idea. That one was too big too. So then it was like, okay, what could we do as a subset of that? And then like that sort of kind of became the framework of this, yeah. but it's grown a lot since then and it's become its own thing. Like it always does. Like you, it's a sort of seed of an idea, but then you, you, as you start to flesh it out and fully embrace what it is, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes its own thing. Yeah, cause but that's kind of where it started. Yeah, well, because I, I noticed that from what I've played, for instance, there are characters that you talk to, mm-hmm. and it's they're, they're like basic dialogue trees, you know, like to get information or to ask about stuff. But it still seems like it is not a strongly like protagonist-driven game. No. Um, is this a, is this a case of an anonymous protagonist, or is it like amnesiac, or is it is it is there someone that you are and that's important to the game no, it, it, land? it started off a little bit more of a uh, well much more of a specific protagonist but the thing I was finding as I was starting to implement the, the, these dialogue setups is that it just it, there was this expository burden that was getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. so for example just to explain who the player is you have to have a conversation about it so there was a character that you'd run into that you'd start to talk about who you were and why you were there and it was already like, God, that's a lot of dialogue to read. And I was trying to be as succinct as possible. Yeah. Which is a lot more succinct than I was on Nolf, by the way. But anyway, so it was... Uh, well, are you guys going to have like voice acting and stuff? Are you planning we, to? It's we, all text We now. may, yeah. It's, okay. it's a kind of cost thing. It would sure. probably be at the end. We certainly couldn't afford to do pickup sessions, and the script is still going undergoing changes. Right, right. So anyway, like the other thing about it is that getting that in there, so you find out who the player is and why you're there... But it also starts to make you think, well, why isn't he reacting to this? And so then, okay, well, I'll put in a reaction here. Like, why isn't he calling out to the girl when she appears and shoots the arrow? And so it just starts to create this burden of of exposition and of, like, narrative that was cluttering up the experience and wasn't adding anything except for making that conversation make sense. Like, it yeah. made it feel more like it made sense so we just pulled it all out and it started to feel a lot more interesting cool yeah there's this i think that it feels like betrayer has the most foregrounded supernatural stuff or sort of um like okay so one of the first things that you do once you get to the settlement is like you look around and stuff and it's empty and then you have to find this bell that's in the back and you ring the bell and ringing the bell like changes the state of the settlement and causes like these ghosts to come out and then you actually talk to them and I think that one criticism that I remember hearing about fear was that people were like oh well the supernatural stuff can't hurt you yeah, hardly ever teeth. or it or you, you don't actually interact with it it just kind of shows up and you look at it and then goes away or, or whatever and it feels like in Betrayer you have to interface with and acknowledge like this weird kind of subjective you know like spirit world kind of aspect um is that is is that something that you wanted to to push on and make more part of the player's experience well it's it's a sort of organic thing where it just felt like the natural thing to do for the the story that we're telling yeah i think again like we started off with a a more uh distilled simple kind of almost expressionistic kind of concept and Mm -hmm. it's it's evolved and and much more fleshed out but it just sort of as we're playing it it just felt like okay this is what needs to happen here this is how it needs to be structured this is these are the threats you need to run into and so we started adding 
some things and changing some things. And yeah. So is it, I mean, something that I would expect for a lot of developers would be, you know, you'd be like, okay, is, is this, is this indie studio that you're doing, does it feel a lot different to, you know, like develop a, an IP or a game or a story or setting or whatever in this setting than, than in your prior work. But actually it, it seems like you had a lot of freedom with that stuff with the other stuff that, that you've worked on. So, I mean, I, I know that with the Fulbright company, just the change in scale, you know, just going from X dozens and dozens of people to four people was was huge and it's the first thing that I've worked on that hasn't been in somebody else's universe that hasn't been in fear or in yep. Bioshock or or whatever but um, like what are the what are the the biggest differences in in your in your experience with coming up with this game and and making it into what it is compared to the stuff that you've worked on before uh, I think that so fear was the first time that we specifically made an IP. Yeah, that we wanted to make, where it was it was really just us, and so this is kind of the same thing, but it's also well, like anything. I mean, there's a, an element of necessity that comes into it of of just re, like I said before of reacting to what's there. Yeah, and it's like okay, well we we're thinking this way, but that just doesn't fit anymore. Yeah, let's let's follow the the sort of shape of what's emerging here and just sort of see where it goes and and try and make it feel as fully react to what's there and, and try and make it all tie it all together so in that sense it's been a little different just because there's nobody to please but us right I think the other thing about it though is that this is the first game I've ever worked on where like the framework of it I don't have anything I can easily reference to solve problems like when I run into problems with some of the storytelling it's it's different from the situation that I've been in the past where I could go and talk to somebody, one of the animators and say, could we do this kind of thing with this character? Like, we've got one animator who's part-time and who's, you know, he's he's got a lot of his work, of work on his plate just to keep up with the enemies that we have in the game. So trying to do any, like, visual storytelling that way is just, it's not a luxury we have. We don't have any of those luxuries, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. So it's it's much more about, like, holy shit, how am I going to get this information across? Like, what the hell am I going to do here? And I don't want to I don't want to assault players with too much reading because I don't want them to rebel against it and stop reading. Right. Like, you see that a lot. Like, we've, we've playtested the game quite a bit with everybody we know. And you can just see, like, the players that don't read in games, they'll just kind of skip through it and then go back out. And it's like, oh. <laughs> So right. I'm trying to keep everything as much as possible. And, like, like when you pick up a note, it's, like, one or two sentences. So yeah. it's very digest. It's like a tweet. It's very digestible. Right. <laughs> so doing that and then having these different mechanisms of doing it. So there's, like, the, the notes that you find. There's the, the clues that you find that have a little bit of ex- exposition to them. There's the conversations, which are r- fairly succinct. The hope is that by mixing it up like that, you can kind of get information across in different ways but it's still I feel like I'm I just wish there was something I could rip off sometimes <laughs> you know like what's an easy way out of this this hole I've dug for myself but you know in the same time that's really it's it's fulfilling when you finally come up with a solution and yeah. and something that works and solves the problem I mean something that I've found a lot of times is I just need to question my assumptions about how much actually needs to go on screen 
like in very early this is not exactly the same kind of thing but in, in very early play tests that we did internally of gone home there were way more locked doors and keys because my initial assumption was you have to get everything in order mm-hmm. and if you get part b before part a that's bad so you have to go into the music room before you go in the library before you can go upstairs and you know our play testers are just like it feels so gamey why are there so many locked doors i don't understand and it just made me question the assumption of like how much do i actually have to make sure you don't see out of order yeah. how much could we just say fuck it whatever like you can look at this or this or this but you have to have kind of looked at all of it before you move on to the next big chunk and you know we went from like six locked doors in our first playtest like one you know yeah. um in in the first half of the game and i think that yeah sometimes in the case that you're describing because you do have like this supernatural kind of like otherworldly feel probably one question i'd be asking myself is just how much of this information do i actually have to give the player access to like you know are there like facts about this world that it's fine if they just don't know that you know no there's plenty of that like there's a lot uh, i'm not i'm definitely planning to keep it very lean but uh there's i've already got the sort of spine of the story figured out and i'm really happy with it and i want it to come across i don't want it to be a case like fear where i regret that (laughs) there was a story structure that i thought was really cool that a lot of people didn't pick up on yeah so i want to make sure it comes across but i a lot of times I'm like, God, I don't have the tools that I need to do this. So then it's a question of, okay, well, how can I, how can I do this? Like, stop saying like, I can't do it this way. Let's figure out, okay, this is what I need to do. How am I going to do it? And then it's a question of breaking it down into what actually needs to be explained, and then looking at, well, what are different ways of doing it? And eventually you come up with something that, okay, this will work. Yeah. Let's let's try this, and maybe you test it. And it's like, eh, it didn't quite work, but that actually sparked a new idea. So it's a lot of that, which is 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 rewarding and and fulfilling, and leads to some interesting sort of unexpected results. But it's at the same time it's time consuming, and when yeah. you're you're burning your savings, it's like I I, would, I just want to rip somebody off at this point. Please just show me just show me a game that did all this stuff, so I can just copy them. I'll just put that in there. This is yeah. good problem solved. But you know we're kind of past most of that now, so I think. Cool. The, the the real test was being on early access and seeing the reaction and you know it's not like Call of Duty where we have millions of responses but we have enough responses and they're all kind of fairly consistent where we can see okay stuff that I was worried that people were going to hate they're actually totally fine with so that works and it's like okay I know these things work that thing doesn't work so we got to fix that but that helps a lot to yeah. to prioritize so yeah, you guys are, like you said, you're on Steam Early Access now, so people can go buy the game and play the, the current version of Betrayer yep. now, and then you guys are hoping to be at um, version 1.0 sometime next year? We're not sure yet. <laughs> but but fingers crossed, <laughs> I imagine. Uh, yeah, well, it, I think it might be done before then. The, oh, great. The, most of cool. the game is... is I'd say it's about 70% overall, okay. which I've been saying for the last few weeks, so that <laughs> might be a, a sign that I'm fudging the numbers a little bit, but yeah. like most of it's there, it's just a question of finishing it, which you know we're starting to get a sense of what that takes, so it's yeah. speeding up a little bit. Cool. Well, congrats on your new company, and Thanks. on uh, 
on getting Betrayer off the ground, getting it in players' hands, and I am really looking forward to seeing how it develops the rest of the way, seeing what upgate, updates you guys do and everything. Thanks. Um, so thanks again, uh, Craig Hubbard, for talking to me about your whole career and uh, <laughs> everything up to the present day, and uh, I, I will keep an eye on Betrayer. Everybody should uh, should check it out. It's a really interesting unsurprisingly kind of strange game yeah, very strange <laughs> and anybody attention. who plays it should definitely post feedback on the steam forums because we're very responsive to feedback and that's part of why we're so excited to be there yes yeah. just to get the outside perspective cool thanks again Craig. Sure.